This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 96. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 96 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio and Audio Technica. Welcome back to another episode. Great to be here. We are, of course, ever so much closer to Episode 100. Got a little piece of paper here that has my information about that, by the way. So uh, let's talk about it. Episode number 100. So the way this is going to work is uh, we are having a uh, live streaming and uh, interview as well as a party on November 18th, uh, 2016, in case you're listening to this podcast in 2017 and you hear this, don't go showing up. So what's going to happen is November 18th, Friday, we are going to do an interview and I say we, I, I'm going to do an interview with uh, Cookie Marenko and Stephen Hart, two Bay Area recording engineers. Uh, who have been in the Bay Area for quite some time, deep discographies, great wealth of experience from both of them, and it's going to be exciting to speak to them in front of a live audience that is going to be streamed over the Internet. And then afterwards, we're going to have a party. Uh, so, you know, just approximately, here's some times to think about if you're in the Bay Area and you're listening or you're outside the Bay Area and you want to come in. Um, the taping or the streaming is going to take place probably around 5 to 7 o'clock on the West Coast time, Pacific time in the United States. And after that, we will have, of course, a uh, party. Uh, so the streaming part of it is limited to uh, an invite-only list. As, as beautiful and big as 25th Street Studios is, we only have so much room in the live room where we're going to be doing the streaming. So i uh, going to have to limit the list there. But once we open up the live room and the control room and the whole studio up to everybody, uh, we're going to have a party and then you can just come on over. There's going to be um, beer and wine uh, served inside and then outside we're going to have a, a pizza truck that apparently tows a, um, a uh, oven behind it, which is going to be kind of cool. So if you want pizza, you can go out and get yourself some pizza. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. And we're going to give away some stuff. Uh, working on the sponsors right now, kind of orchestrating that. Going to do some online giveaways during that time period to uh, make sure we take care of our friends and all the other countries and all the other parts of the United States that listen and tune in. And because uh, we can't forget about you. Uh, so we're going to give away some stuff online. We are going to give away some stuff locally, too. So November 18th, that's going to be WCA number 100. Now, normally, I release shows on a Monday. So that Monday, the 14th, there will be no show. It's going to happen on that Friday. Then we'll have our regular show uh, the following Monday, the 21st. That will be show number 101, venturing, of course, into hopefully what will be the 200th show. So, But we won't talk about that for a long time, I swear. So there it is, WCA number 100 coming up. Well, let's talk about today, WCA number 96. Today I have on my, my friend J.J. Blair, and uh, J.J. is a producer, an engineer, musician. He lives in L.A., and he's worked with uh, Johnny Cash, June Carter Cash, Rod Stewart. He's actually sat in uh, with The Who on keyboards to uh, replace... Uh, Brian Kehu, who was uh, sitting in with them at the time. Uh, Brian, of course, did the recording the Beatles book, which is an amazing book, I have to say. Shout out there to Brian. Hi, Brian. So, yeah, so JJ has worked with various artists. He's done some engineering work for uh, P. Diddy, for uh, Weezer, Black Eyed Peas, Bird York, Melissa Etheridge, Smokey Robinson. Yeah, 
He's a man of many talents. And uh, I stayed with him at his house when I went to AES. And so we took the time to sit down in his living room and have a chat, which was really, really fun. So J.J. Blair coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's see, so a couple more things. My fellow uh, Android users will be happy to know that we now are on the Google Play Store. There's a bright orange icon on the right-hand side of the Working Class Audio site. You can check that out. And uh, if you continue to uh, subscribe via iTunes, that's cool too. Hey, while you're on the iTunes store, if you can, if you haven't already, if you like the show, I assume if you're continuing to listen, you like the show, head on over there and leave a comment, leave a positive comment if you're comfortable doing so and uh, let everybody know. That, of course, always helps. We got some uh, great comments up there right now and appreciate the good words. Uh, so that's it. Let's, uh, let's get into it here with J.J. Blair here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I always say welcome to the podcast, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome to my house. Yeah, it's it's been a stupendous several days, I have to say. And I'll just kind of start with now, you know, being a Northern California person who always hears it from a lot of people, uh, mainly in the music world, oh, I, I hate LA, you know? And I got to say, I was excited to come here again. Maybe my perspective is positive on this trip because you've been a total ambassador and it, you know a lot of people. I don't know how that happens. I mean, I know a lot of people in the Bay Area too, and I and, and I always attribute it to the fact that I've been there, you know, since 1988. And maybe it's just your longevity here. And but you also have a focus. Hanging out with you the last several days, it's been really fascinating because that focus is like I could see it. You don't seem distracted by everything around you, although you, you are paying attention to, you know, we've been watching the news and stuff, but just driving around, like all the craziness and the traffic, you just like get us from, you know, your house to AES and all that. So I wonder, I know this is kind of a long-winded explanation, sure. but I think that your focus in what you do has allowed you to really hone in on spending time meeting the people and working with the people in our industry. I, you know, something that you and I discussed briefly is I, I, I'm actually not a terribly well-adjusted person socially <laughs> unless I have something in common to talk about people. And I get really excited to talk about recording, recording gear, guitars or hockey, you know, that's the, the fifth or, you know, snowboarding, that's it. Like there's, I have a very small window of things that really interest me and then I will and I and I can be very gregarious in those situations and otherwise I seem a little sullen and withdrawn in social situations so I think when you put me in a community of people where I have oh the dog is sniffing the uh, pop filter do not that's amazing that's what happens there's a problem with we have Lola the dog here and she has seen the fur pop filter on the on the Zoom recorder. On the Zoom recorder. Which we're not even using. Yes, and that's and and she thinks it's a chew toy. You know, when you put me in a situation with, with people that where I have topics that interest me, I, I I tend to come out of my shell. And so I really I don't know. I guess there's something about it's not that I have a focus, as I just have an excitement. And obviously you and I have the audio thing in common for sure, and that's that's how we met. So I don't know if Others who are not in audio would uh, experience that same focus uh, hanging around you. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it depends on the context that they're seeing it in. Mm -hmm. My brain just works however it works. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I, I guess I guess one of the uh, 
it's funny they they call it attention deficit disorder, but but one of the byproducts of ADD is your ability to hyper focus on things. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the, the amazing thing is is you can't go to you know an AES convention, and and at least half the people there are on the autism Asperger spectrum because they're engineers. It's just the fact. It's like it's like Silicon Valley has I think the largest population of, uh, or at least percentage wise of people on the spectrum because they're engineers. That's just what they do. That's how their brains work. And so it's like a lot of people just sort of have that acutely focused, very smart vibe there. And, um, and it's like, you know, I just feel that I'm, I'm sort of at home when I'm in that environment. My girlfriend will come to dinner. There was a dinner with, uh, a couple friends, you know, one's a very well-known, uh, mastering engineer one's a well-known and two of them are well-known manufacturer and they're all very smart and we just started talking about like what's the best whether you should use polystyrene in a uh, 10,000 picofarad uh, capacitor or whether you should use you know a mica cap or you know and and, and my poor girlfriend just like her eyes just yes. her eyes rolled in the back of her head and so when I'm unencumbered from having to be uh, considerate of regular, you know, human beings who who talk about things that people actually give a shit about. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just more enjoyable for me, and I come out of my shell. Maybe that's what you're experiencing because a number of a, a number of people who see me outside that environment, I've been I've been described as morose or aloof, and uh, <laughs> yeah, which is interesting because I, I know this sounds awful to say, but your reputation precedes you really, because a lot of people, a lot of people in the pro audio world know you, whether it's on gear sluts or any kind of forum, or, you know, you're, you're known to a lot of people as a really critical guy. And some people are a little scared of that. And some people are like, Oh, JJ's, you know, fucking brilliant. You know, it's funny. There's two things about this. There's a reason the reason I always use my name in any forum and I don't go by some anonymous moniker is because I want at least some accountability for, because I, I have a tendency to be very opinionated. And, I, you know, if, if I say something that's out of line or wrong, I, I want to, I, I feel that I, I need to be held accountable to that. And part of it is, is, I don't know, I think that's, you know, my, my father... <laughs> My father was an attorney. He was a really brilliant litigator. I think there's part of me that likes to argue. <laughs> there's part of me that uh, wants to get down to the truth of something. And I will always, you know, and I, and I, on the other hand, I recognize when I've met my match and when somebody knows more than I do, you know, like you just had Chuck's wiki on. Chuck's a good friend of mine. Chuck is one of the more brilliant people I know. And Chuck is never afraid to tell me when I'm wrong. And I go like, oh, okay, thank you for, I just learned something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I know that there's a lot of misinformation out on the internet, out on forums, and, and sometimes people have more opinions than they do experience. Yes. And Which is why my gear sluts, my 
quote is eventually your experience catches up with your opinion yeah which came from my friend david palmer my brother used to say about a former band manager that i had and i loved it it was uh, he's risen to his level of incompetence and he essentially you know he described this manager as he's a mcdonald's line cook that is trying to work in a four-star restaurant right you know you know obviously a lot of people's opinions out there are shaped by what they read on forums rather than what they experience and that's that's challenging and i can what i love about you is you really don't uh, you remind me in many ways like i don't know if you know a former guest on wca scott evans who is a guy i really respect who i think is very smart and he doesn't in my opinion suffer fools he's just he also likes to get at the truth life's too short is basically anybody who knows me personally knows that i i I have a friend who always reminds me, like, you don't suffer fools. Like, I, and, and I don't take shit. That is sort of my thing. I will always apologize where warranted. And, and I'm also somebody who, you know, I don't, I'm not really out looking for to make enemies or whatever. And I, 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 and, and I don't know that my online persona is necessarily indicative of who I am in real life either. I can attest to that because we've hung out at, at tape-up conferences potluck conferences, uh, or as we like to say, Craig op. affectionately Craig op for Craig Schumacher. But I've hung out with you a little bit there. And those were always positive experiences and hanging out with you these past few days during AES has just really been super enjoyable for me. And uh, so I would, I would definitely counter anybody that said, Oh, yeah, JJ is if they had anything negative to say, I would definitely come to your defense. Yeah, well, thank you. I bet you know, and I, I appreciate that. And on the other hand, um, not to sound cavalier about it, I'm not too concerned about what people think of my online persona. Just because, in the end, it really doesn't matter. I know, <laughs> you know, I know. either. And and I've had, and honestly, and I told you about this. I've had, I've gotten work because of my online persona. You know, and and people either like me for that, or they don't like me for that, or they get and and it's that. You know, when when you try to make everybody like you all the time, really, then you're just an asshole. That's just... <laughs> <laughs> just be who you are. Just be who you are, you know. And um, I think my typing fingers may be, you know, directly connected to my id or something. <laughs> they sort of bypass the rest of me that's, you know, considerate. And it's funny. It's just... Um, every, people who know me in person, they, they always say I'm sweet, you know, which mm -hmm. is definitely not my online personality. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not from what I've seen. No, no. I think I think the last uh, rude and arrogant is usually what I'm called. But that's um, again, I know I'm I'm more concerned about the information that I'm trying to convey rather than the style in which I'm trying to convey it. And and some of the people who taught me some of the greatest lessons either in my craft or, you know, as a musician or just in life, it wasn't always given to me sweetly <laughs> uh, or with patience and tolerance. I call life uh, better living through trial and terror. And I say that, uh, you know, my most important lessons have been learned the hard way. And frequently that's by people who were like willing to tell me the truth and maybe set a boundary with me and go like, hey, you know what, this is, your behavior's unacceptable, your work's unacceptable, your attitude's unacceptable, whatever it is. And then I'm kind of left there holding my ass in my hand, just going like, ouch, well, this is, a, this is an opportunity for me to, uh, you know, become a better person or whatever. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it is my, my joke is always, you know, with people who can't handle that. It's like, this is what happens when every kid gets a trophy. I'm not someone who subscribes to tough love, but I'm like definitely somebody who subscribes to like firm boundaries, you know? Yeah. And anybody who's ever worked for me, whether it be in the studio or, I mean, in the recording studio, or I used to own a, a big rehearsal studio in Hollywood. No one's ever seen me yell at them or berate them or belittle them. You know, I'll admonish somebody for doing something wrong and then I move on from it. Uh, that's, I'm not, so that, that's anybody who, who's, who's spent any time working with me, they, they, they see that I'm, I'm a very fair and measured person. But, but that I'm, you know, I'm, I just, I don't want to fuck around. Let's go back a bit. We were talking about it in our car ride the other day uh, as we were headed, I can't remember where we were driving, but you were telling me a little bit about how you got into audio and how that started. Can you kind of walk me through a little bit of that? Well, honestly, it started, you know, my father was now what they call an audiophile. I think they called them stereophiles back then. We had uh, in our living room, we had these giant uh, JBL S7R Olympuses, which are currently my soffit speakers. They were my dad's speakers that he had bought in 1969. And, you know, and he had the Marantz tube amplifiers and the very first B&O uh, linear, uh, linear turntable, which I still have. And everything, he was that guy that everything, you would buy a record and you would play it one time. And the one time you played it, you would record it to the uh, TAC quarter inch tape deck and then anytime you wanted to play it afterwards you would play the tape um, so that the record not never got scratched or, or dirty or whatnot uh, and so I always had the quarter the, the reel to reel to play around with as a kid and I, I even you know I, I had figured out how to splice and everything as a kid and, and a number of stuff and I was always into music as well I think I found the Beatles at six years old I got taken to the record store to buy, be able to buy my first record and I bought Rubber Soul and I've just always loved music. I wanted to, I got a little crappy uh, harmony acoustic at a pawn shop when I was eight and took me till I was 11 to really finally start teaching myself. But I've just always been obsessed with music. And at one point in uh, high school, I, you know, wanted to try to start recording more. I would do the thing where I would record onto a cassette and sort of the Les Paul thing. And then I bounced it to another cassette while recording. And I had sort of figured that out on my own in high school. And then I got my little Tascam 4-track and eventually moved up to a 388. But I knew that was what I wanted to do. And, and I was very attracted to the technical process of recording. I got out of, when I graduated from high school, I tried to get in Chicago. I couldn't get a an internship at any of the... Uh, Chicago uh, recording studios, but I was able to get an internship at an ad agency. So I got to spend a lot of time in recording studios and see that. And I would just focus in on everything and, and watch. I just, I was just taking mental notes of everything and I so soaked everything in as a sponge. I moved to LA in 90 after pretending to go to college for a second. And I studied recording at college. So I learned the basic fundamental things that I think everybody should know, like phase and how microphones work and a lot, a lot of stuff that people who are buying gear seem to have no idea, uh, some of these basic things. But um, in like 90, 91, 92, I just couldn't, couldn't make any inroads anywhere. I was a 20-year-old kid here. And I mean, I was even trying to get a job at uh, Rocket Cargo so that I could maybe deliver stuff to recording studios. And I, and I just, I was just not having good luck. And I was uh, rehearsing, I was in a band 
and I was rehearsing at a studio called Cole Rehearsal, and the owner wanted to sell it. Um, it wasn't a terribly large amount of money, um, and this was the 90s, so you could get unsecured business bank loans fairly easily. Yep. Uh, and my mom had a friend at a bank who made me the loan, and I and at 22 years old, I became the owner of like one of the major rehearsal studios in town, and everybody came through, like every you know, you name it. You know, we would have Chili Peppers, REM, Kiss, you know, anybody that uh, that didn't take themselves too seriously. Rage Against the Machine recorded Evil Empire there. Um, and so I would meet all the A&R guys. I meet the producers because everybody would come through there and do their pre-production for the records. I became very close friends with uh, members of a band called Eleven, and we sort of formed a, a, a bond and working partnership. Um, I learned a great deal from them. They took me out on the road with them. Went on tour with Soundgarden during Super Unknown. Um, I was just, and I wasn't out with them playing. I was just, you know. I, I was I was the I was the I was the uh, non-sexual groupie, um, <laughs> uh, and and I and the point being I was just in a situation where I really got to meet a lot of people, and every one of my friends had a record deal, and I was just the guy who would always go by the recording studio, and sit around, and uh, watch everyone make the record and soak everything in and watch these great producers, and I had a friend whose name is Alan, or I have a friend whose name is Alan Hirschberg, who has moved on from audio, but he was a great engineer. I just basically let him mentor me. Uh, and eventually in 94, and it's a very long-winded answer, but in 94, uh, I was in a situation where, you know, properties were really cheap. I was able to find this house that had a place to build a studio. And I built a studio, and part of the idea was for Alan to bring his clients here. And so I got to learn through working under him. And you know, the first time that I got to first was for Mike Landau, who is one of the preeminent session players of all time. And so I'm, I'm immediately getting to work with really heavy cats, and in situations like that, pretty soon, you know, I had friends who'd gotten dropped from their record labels or whatever, who said like, "Hey, can you produce this?" And I was like, "Sure." <laughs> And I just sort of jumped in and, and used everything that I had uh, learned up to that point through observation and then tried to put it in practice and find out what actually works and what doesn't work and find out why something works or why it doesn't work. And I guess so that's the short story made long. Did you say the studio was already here? or No, no. no there was an in-law apartment uh, of this house and I, I wanted to find a house that had a situation for us that, that would be conducive to a studio and i found um i was like well who's done good home studios well okay here's this guy who designed bob clear mountain's place and let's gut it and bring him in and have him design something and that was this guy brett Tini at bodo design designed the room huh and and that was the smartest thing i did because from day one i had a great sounding room that i didn't have to go like how do I treat this room acoustically and understand what I'm doing? So that was... You kind of bypassed a lot of the challenges that I think that a lot of people face when it comes to... Like some people in their learning process are hampered by acoustically challenged rooms. Yes. And so they're... And even in professional studios. Yeah. So they're always second guessing themselves and questioning the whole process. Whereas you set yourself up with a well done room so that you were hearing back accurately what things sounded like and obviously that was in your favor 
that that whole rehearsal space thing from a business perspective a big learning yeah i mean i I learned that i suck at business as part of (laughs) that i'm better off like letting people (laughs) who know how to handle that like i learned to delegate because i suck at business yeah um i'm good at ideas i'm bad at business type of thing or at least the you know the the day-to-day things I mean, the other thing I want to say about that was really important about Cole was a place that was, it was an actual social hub for the 90s recording or, or music scene where people who didn't, they weren't rehearsing. They just come by to play pool and visit people and hang out. And it was, you know, it, it was a really sort of magical time that I was just very lucky to be at the epicenter of to, get to know and and work with and meet a lot of you know people because of that so that was you know one of the smarter things i ever did it's like oh i can't get a job i think i'll create a job you know makes sense to me did i'm curious about some of the lessons that you learned from that experience whether it be business or people anything that you carry with you to this day yes and it didn't take me long to come up with my motto which has served me since pretty much (laughs) the beginning um, friends don't let friends act like rock stars. I like that. And and the reason I saw that was I was I either was a, had clients or people that I was becoming friends with that were actual bona fide famous rock stars that I thought were kind of assholes. And I, I'm not going to say who it was, but there was a guy who was really big at the time, and we'd become friends, and we hung out every day. And I just kept noticing there was this very subtle thing where he just we couldn't hang out at the same level. There was, you know, I, I, I had to be in some way subservient to him. Uh, and, and, and very, through very subtle means, this kept happening. I just wasn't interested in that dynamic with anybody. It's like, I don't, it's like, I only hang out with you because I like you and I find you fascinating. I don't need to hang out with famous people. I, you can go get your sycophant somewhere else, you know, so that was like one of those rock star behaviors that was like, okay, I'm not just interested in that. And then I saw all the people who came through who hadn't even recorded their record yet, who were already rock stars in their own mind and who just had a shitty attitude. And I just thought like, wow, anybody who cares about anybody should not let them behave like this. And the same goes, and this also goes for engineers. I mean, we talked about this. There's, there's, There are people who... You know, we're engineers, we're not rock stars. And there are engineers who want to be rock stars. They behave like rock stars, they dress like rock stars, they have that whole fuck you quotient. Yeah. That, um, and that's, you know, and and we're, we're, we're not, people are rock stars because they get up in front of people and they can perform and they can become sort of this superhuman being on stage and transport you and do this thing. And that's part of, we kind of excuse it a little bit because they're performers. Right. You know, I, I, once they get off stage, I, maybe I'll excuse it. I just don't want to be around it, but there's no excuse for that. If you're not on stage performing, if you're just an engineer Mm -hmm. and a producer, it's like, I'm sorry, you don't, you know, you don't get to wear a cape or whatever. (laughs) Um, There is so much, and I'm not going to name names and alienate anybody, but oh my God, there are there's so much rock star like I don't know fronts being put on as we as I mean you and I have observed some things over the last several days during AES at some parties and just also in the magazines you know it's a fine line I know that you know a manufacturer is trying to sell a piece of gear 
and it really helps them to have a, a recognizable face recognizable face who's worked with bona fide rock stars yeah. i get it but what's frustrating is to see those engineers behave and like really i don't know i'm going to tell you something I've worked with people who are just bona fide legends. You know, I don't work with them as often or as frequently and they don't call me, you know, like I have friends like, you know, Ed Cherney or Nico Bullis, like they're on somebody's speed dial for when they need someone. I'm not that person, right? But I have worked with big bona fide legends. And I just consider myself lucky to have been in that situation and done a good job and not screwed the pooch. And I never confuse the fact that those people made great records because I was involved. You know, it's like they probably would have made a great record with someone else as well, but they're a great artist. You know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I got to be in that situation and I got to be part of that process, but I didn't write those songs. I didn't, you know, I didn't perform them. I mean, or maybe I did co-write it, but that's not the point. It's like, it's, it's whoever, it's that artist, it's Johnny Cash, it's whomever, it's that band. And that doesn't make me greater because I got to be in their orbit and I was lucky enough to be in a situation that I, I was blessed with a skill set that put me there and be around somebody else's greatness. And that's the thing I think people shouldn't confuse is like, yeah, just because you have this discography and you've done these things and, and you know, yes, you did produce this record and you were very, you played a huge role in how that record came out. That's the artist. <laughs> You know, we're, we're, we're making the widgets, so to speak. Yeah. I, I always feel like a sense of um, obligation and guilt, like, uh, because I, I've mentioned it on the show many times. I've, I've worked at, the, at, at this radio station, KFOG, and I've been very fortunate to work with some pretty big national bands in this very condensed time frame of I record and mix the show in a little control room by myself. I'm not out with interacting with the band. And while there has been some big names, I always try to make it clear on my website that I worked with these people. <coughs> Caveat, <laughs> it was done in this context. Because I actually had somebody call me up and say, hey, we're listening to your mix of such and such. And I was like, I didn't mix that. You're That's so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you said you worked with them. Well, yeah, but it was in this context. Yeah. So I always feel like, I can't bullshit and 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 lie about my body of work to to people. I just it it strikes me as dis, disingenuous. And so when somebody says that they've worked with somebody and you never really see them as the featured person, like you know, I mean, we all know, like let's say Michael Beinhorn, you know, he's been on the show. Michael worked on Soundgarden, Super Unknown. That he produced it. Yeah, that's a fact. So when you see others that uh, list that they've worked with a band like that, but you've never heard their name attached to it, it, I always kind of feel like, well, how did they work with them? I think on that point, this is how I feel about it. And especially you see this in Los Angeles because, you know, people don't have steady jobs. They are, you know, trying to act in something or sell a script or whatnot or join a band or used to be that you're always trying to join so whatever it was or get a record deal or do whatever and i hadn't been here long and i would 
see people, you know, bragging about, oh, I optioned this script to so and so, and it's like, oh yes, you, and then you find out, oh yeah, some guy, you know, you optioned your script for five dollars to some guy or type of thing, and or people just straight out, you know, maybe five percent of what they're saying is true, and the rest is just absolute untrue self-aggrandizement, and that never sat well with me, and I'm just not a good liar, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I think I've I've seen people do get with very little skill, get very far in their chosen careers just by being able to bullshit their way into situations. And I'm just not that guy, but that, that type of thing repels me. I have never wanted to uh, pretend I'm doing something that I even downplay things, you know, like people know me sometimes as I had a Wikipedia page created for me, not by me, by some who fan, because I was lucky enough through some, absolute miraculous situation to get to play keyboards for them for one concert, you know? And then anytime I see someone, some reference to me, if I'm playing some gig or something, I always see next to my name, JJ Blair, the who, and I feel embarrassed about that. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and that embarrasses me or when I see stuff and, and be maybe because I have a sense of shame or whatnot <laughs> that I don't, I only want to take credit for something that I really feel like, yeah, I did this. I did, you know, I am, I am responsible in some way for the way this came out. I didn't, I wasn't just like one of the cogs in the wheel, you know? I always feel like in that situation, uh, like, would, would it make you feel better if you'd having the who in the parentheses, which, you know, there's the name, then the parentheses, and it's what's in those parentheses for people's names. It's always like, you know, the thing that will either get them hired or, or, or bring them recognition. But do you feel like had you like toured with the who, then that would have been a legitimate thing? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. But you know, it was a one-off gig and I only played half the show on keyboards and that type of thing. And, uh, and I'm not the great keyboard player either. <laughs> but I, so I feel, I, I don't feel like a fraud because like I showed up, I did it, I, you know, and I had to have, I mean, just the balls to show up is something <laughs> and then to do it and not do it terribly is a whole nother thing. So I take pride in that, but I don't want, I think that's like the footnote, interesting story of my resume. That's not my resume of who I am. I think that's disingenuous for me to go like, oh yeah. Um, my credits are the who, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's like sound bites in our industry for who we are when it's not very accurate. It's not, compl- it doesn't tell the whole story. Correct. I, on the other hand, I will say though, in, in terms of me trying to get business or something, I will always put a list of credits of everyone I've worked with, even if I just did you know, or for like people have been in the studio. Okay, so I had so-and-so come in just to do some vocal overdubs or whatever. Okay, they were a client here. You know, I just, I don't, I don't feel bad about advertising my studio or whatever or saying the fact that like, yeah, I've recorded so-and-so even if it's for a day or for a session or whatever. Sure. Um, but that's different than me going around saying that I produced so-and-so or that, that um, you know, I, I'll go like, yeah, I'm one of the 20 engineers on that record, but... which happens more frequently these days. Um, You live in Los Angeles. You know, obviously it needs very little explanation as to it being pretty much one of the entertainment capitals of the world. I mean, there's, there's other places like Nashville, but Los Angeles uh, is a combination of 
all kinds of industries, uh, and obviously music and film are two strong points. Is there, for you running around in the audio world, is there just a lot of bullshit to navigate, a lot of politics, or is it, how do you, how do you make your way day to day? Well, and, and because I mean, as we talked about, you, you have a sense of, you do have a sense of humility and, and, and I think you do have a good, uh, you have a great moral compass and that can be challenging in a, in a land where there's a lot of, uh, posers. You know, I mean, and it's not even just posers. There are people who are very good at what they do, who are willing to jump up and take credit for someone else's work <laughs> as well. Yeah. And they may think that they, you know, they, they may just, they may just may just have some, you know, delusion of grandeur thinking that like, you know, like, yeah, that was, I'm responsible for that. I mean, there was, and I don't, uh, he seems to be a nice guy, so I don't want to drag his name into it, but there was someone who worked on a lot of famous records who took credit for one technique and someone else who worked on those records says, no, it was the guy at the studio who came up with that technique type of thing. So that doesn't mean that the first guy who made all those records wasn't great and that he doesn't have a sense of humility. He maybe, he just doesn't quite remember how that happened. But um, regardless, the fact that there really aren't labels anymore has taken a certain level of politics out of it. Uh-huh. And then the rest of the politics is just, I think it's, you, you just have to have some relationship directly with artists these days or anyone else who's willing to give you some type of job. I think the rest of it is just there's personalities of people who like each other and don't like each other, and most people are grown-ups and realize, hey, I'm friends with both of these people. I like both of them. They don't like each other. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stay out of it. So just because you may choose to have a war with such and such producer engineer who also works at a studio you work at it's not like you're going to get blacklisted by someone who's glad to take your money um yeah i think the only thing where i the only thing that i do seem to find politics is with naris i've i've tried to make at least locally i've tried to make some inroads a couple times with trying to get involved and and i've just found that uh, there's at least in the los angeles chapter little to no interest to having me involved in, in, in anything as opposed to so-and-so who has sold, you know, 50 million records or whatnot. Um, hmm. I don't know what that is or why that is. I'm just going to say that's the only place that I've really noticed politics around here lately, ever since the demise of having to kiss ANR people's asses. And, you know, that's about it. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the interview here with J.J. Blair here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Going to take a sponsor break with Audio-Technica as usual and going to go over once again, I'm going to mention it again, back over to the Working Class Audio site. That's a hint. I'm trying to get you to go over there. Click on the Artist Series rebate banner that's on the right-hand side. If you are thinking about buying one of the Artist Series mics, they are doing rebates of $30, $20, and $15. And clicking on that banner will take you over there to their site, and it will explain the whole thing. We all like to get a little money back, of course, when we buy stuff. So there it is. Check that out. And if uh, you're not in the market for any Artist Series mics, uh, there's other things, of course, that they offer. So head on over to audio-technica.com and check those out. That offer, of course, is good until December 31st of 2016. Make sure and mention that. That's it. So let's get back over to our conversation with J.J. Blair here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I want to talk about the studio for a bit, which is called Fox Force 5. For Fox Force 5 Recorders. So where does that name come from? 
I was building this studio when Pulp Fiction came out and Uma Thurman's character talks about how she was in a pilot called Fox Force 5. And I thought, God, that'd be a great band name. I don't know anyone who needs a band name right now, but I need a studio name. And so it just, it just, <laughs> so it's stuck. Yeah, my girlfriend hates the name, but she also doesn't like Quentin Tarantino movies. But coincidentally, when I did June Carter Cash's record, she wrote a song about, she has a song about Quentin Tarantino and Pulp Fiction. So it was very, uh, no, very coincidental. Uh, <laughs> well, speaking on that, not to table my question here about the studio, but June Carter Cash, did you work with her here at the studio? No, we went to Hendersonville, which is a suburb of Nashville that a lot of the old school country stars lived at. And we recorded in a cabin on the Cash property that uh, her father had built. Huh. How did that gig come about? I'm friends with Vicki Hamilton, who had, um, she was Guns N' Roses' first manager. Like, then they all were, like, were at the stage where they were living in on her couch and her floor and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, and she had then gotten an A&R gig at Geffen, and then she had eventually started an um, indie record label, and... And I don't remember how we were friends, but we had become friends. And for, she, for some reason, thought I was legitimate and liked me or whatnot. And Rick Rubin had told her, hey, you know, you should sign June. And she signed June. She came to me and said, um, would you record this record? And the idea, I think, at the time was to have Nick Lowe produce it. It was going to be because Nick had been married to, I think, Carlene Carter and then going to be Nick and Marty Stewart had also been married to one of the daughters and Rodney Crowell who'd been married to Roseanne and and so it was going to be June Carter and the ex-son-in-laws it was going to be (laughs) and uh, um and I was going to engineer for Nick Lowe who I am such a fan of his production uh and I was and then he wound up not being on the record and uh her son uh John Carter Cash and I wound up co-producing the record where he just kind of brought in all the musicians and handled that. And I took care of everything technical. And, you know, when you have musicians like Marty Stewart and, and Rodney Crowell and Norman Blake, you know, you don't really need to produce them. <laughs> right. You just, and I had a bunch of people sitting around in a circle with acoustic guitars and an upright bass and, uh, and, and someone, you know, maybe playing brushes on a snare drum and June and Johnny and, and sitting in a circle in a, in a log cabin and, and it was just my job to not fuck this up. <laughs> just don't <laughs> screw the pooch on this no, one. By, by the way, there's no patch bay, and here's your blackface ADATs to record into. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm like behind the ADATs trying to like, okay, here's an empty track over here. And I have a very sick Johnny Cash who had uh, just been out of a two-week coma who's going to give me his one take that he's – saved his strength for going like i'm i'm ready anytime anytime jj i'm ready and, and I'm, sitting, I'm like okay i gotta find the empty track you know it was wow got him and just praying to the recording gods that the adats don't screw up yeah i didn't and i didn't get to go john i, I want to see which mic pre you sound better on give me a <laughs> let's see let's see if you sound better on the api or the neve on that topic, you know, we were, uh, as we've been for the audience, you know, uh, I've been staying at JJ's house and, uh, over the last, 
several days as we drive into AES every day and uh, and back home. Uh, we have some great conversations. And we've talked about, no names, of course, but um, we've talked about just getting down to it and recording and not mucking about, just like, you know, we talk, we've talked about some people who want to try out every single, you know, they want to listen to solder. They want to listen to every mic. Which in, is fine to do on your time. Right. <laughs> By the way, I don't want to discourage anyone from listening to things and knowing the difference between sounds of various gear. On your time. On your time. Right. Because we've talked about some situations in recording where people want to bring out every single mic in the cabinet and try every different mic pre and every permutation combination that they can and getting down to it. And so your Johnny Cash story and, and June Carter Cash record um, really exemplifies that. There's times when you just got to like get down to it because this is it. You may not get this opportunity again. Y yes. And then, and that was certainly the case because he went into a coma again after, you know, and then we had to go back and get, get a second vocal take like after his next coma <laughs> that was the getting vocal takes between comas yes yeah so i mean that's a precarious situation with a very with a i mean a legend of music that we all very much uh, and really enjoy and respect and, and love wow so these experiences with people on that level i'm going to tell a story about that situation because i think it's very instructive the first thing is my philosophy about sound versus performance performance trumps everything you know i i call i have something that i call the al green rule which is i'm, I'm growing up listening to al green records thinking these were recorded in the 60s because the fidelity was so bad then to find it's like really this was made in 1975 and it sounds this bad well it, it doesn't matter to anyone who's not one of us who listens to it because a the song is outstanding and b the performance is outstanding and c the sound works you know it just it just suits it but mm -hmm. um uh, jagged little pill was recorded on blackface adats i hear it it drives me nuts the 24 million people 24 million people who bought the record don't care right you know, because the songs and the performance were what mattered and that's the important thing and i and and it's and my job as an engineer is to stay out of the way in the song and the, of the song and performance, unless for some reason I'm trying to help somebody, uh, you know, perform better. But otherwise, um, I want to stay out of the way. And and that June Carter Cash record was a perfect example of that. You know, I needed to capture the vibe. I'm working on headphones in the same room as everybody else in a square log cabin with god knows whatever build up at you know 100 to 250 hertz and everyone's playing acoustic instruments so it's really building up and i can't hear it especially because when i'm listening back on the speakers in between takes whatever anomalies are in the room i don't hear it it's not to like bring the recordings back here do i go like oh man i got a problem on this low end here but that's fixable you know we had an amazing and incredibly intimate situation of people who've known each other forever and ever, been son-in-laws, worked with each other forever and ever. And the duet I did with uh, Johnny and June was a song called Farside Banks of Jordan. Rodney's father had just died right before that. Johnny was sick, so Rodney had a lot of heaviness because Johnny was also like a father to, to, to Rodney. Rodney Crowell was married to Roseanne. I don't know if I said that, uh, Cash. And it's a song about 
basically one lover saying to their sweetie that, you know, I think I'm going to die before you, but I'll be waiting on the far side banks of Jordan for you, you know, and that's, that's what the song is about. And that is to me, the proudest recording. ever. That's my favorite recording I've ever done. When they finished that take, John and June were sitting next to, next to each other. They were holding hands and there was not a dry eye in that room. And it's not technically my best recording. Maybe there's a little too much compression on this or that or whatnot. You know, you can hear a little bleed from uh, Johnny's scratch vocal or original vocal into his guitar mic or whatnot. It's it's not my most perfect technical recording, but it is the most emotional recording I've ever done. And I will put it up there with any recording that anyone says, like, this is an emotional recording. And I remember coming back from June's funeral, and there's a line in it, because everyone thought that John was going to die before June. And there was a line where June sings, if it, if it turns to be his will, that I am first to cross, meaning that I'm going to die first. And I came back, and I put that on, and I heard it, and I just broke down and started sobbing. And I was like, and, and, and that, was, that was a situation where I just had to put up mics, make sure I had levels that weren't you know, distorting or whatnot, and try to capture the vibe as best I could and not sit around and get the best sound possible. And that is really, you know, I was trying to document that moment in time. And I think I did a really good job of that. And I'm, and I'm extremely proud of myself for having done that. And still somewhat green at the time. I, I didn't even know half as much as I know now. But that for me is anyone that I'm who wants to learn about recording. I always try and tell them that story to say like, like, this is what's important. Not, you know, do I have the best kick drum sound or whatever it is? Like, am I getting the point of this song across? Am I getting the emotion? Am I getting the performance? And I did that. And that, and that's why that's my favorite recording. I have so many thoughts about that in general. I mean, it's nice in, one respect to be in that situation where that's all you do worry about. Once again, the focus of all this extraneous bullshit is not getting in your way. The whole point is just like, like you said, make sure the levels aren't blowing up and that the mics are on and that you're recording. It doesn't matter that you're recording the blackface data ads. Nobody gives a shit. It's the performance. Yeah. Um, obviously there are situations you know, and I mean, I know you know this, but I mean, obviously there's situations where you're in studios and keeping drummers happy and getting good kick drum sounds and all that, that, that plays a role in some, to some degree. But in some respects, some of the easiest times I have recording are those situations where just make sure it's not blowing up and the mic's there. And that, and, and, and that the, whoever's performing can work with the sound that helps them perform and they're not fighting against too, you know, that's. Really? That's, it. That's the bottom line sometimes, just that. The rest I'll take care of, I'll fix it. I mean, and especially in the in where we're at now with digital recording, I mean, we've got a little Zoom recorder sitting here on the floor uh, with the mics plugged into it. I know the levels aren't blowing up, and I'm not really concerned about getting the best sound right now. I'm more concerned about our conversation. And when you put that in the music context, I think that that's, that carries great weight. And I think that that's something a lot of people overlook because they just get so, so wrapped up in the technical and it's okay to get wrapped up in the technical i think but as you said you know on your own time yeah don't don't step on the artist's dick yeah <laughs> 
metaphorically speaking. Metaphorically speaking. Yes, they may, you know. They may I mean, you have... shouldn't literally do that either. Right. Unless they're paying you extra <laughs> for that type of treatment. And you're getting but, points. Yes. You know, going to, there's there was a certain engineer who exemplifies the opposite of that. And it and I think, it, you know, and there's a couple of producers. That, it becomes about them and not about the song. And it's always about the song, you know. It's not about the razzmatazz of let's, you know, try all these different things. It's like record it, get it down. It works or it doesn't work. When we were out at dinner with Steve Genoweth the other night and he was talking about working with with Nico Bolas and, and Nico said, we have to have a rule for this record. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, let's have a rule. He goes, okay, uh, small black or thin black microphones, you know? So it was like all 421s, all 451s and things like, what, what do we have? We have the Audio-Technica. These are BP-4000. BP-4000. See, Nico could have used this on that record, you know? Oh, sorry, BP-4001s. BP-4001. Nico could have used this on that record. That's right. And and that's, and I've seen Nico do that. I've, like, I've seen Nico put 421 on piano I'm like who the who puts, you know <laughs> like who puts a 421 on a piano you know and he's like I love 421s I use them everywhere I'm like oh it never occurred to me like I would never have thought to put a 421 on a piano that's just not what I would think of and it doesn't man he could have put anything on there he could have put a 57 on a piano and he's going to make it sound good and he's just going to hit record and go and he's going to make it work and that's that's sort of the bottom line um oh here's a here's an interesting story that talking about just making things work and not interrupting the artist um i had someone bring Smokey robinson in to to sing on something and, and there was a limited amount of time and Smokey's an amazing wonderful guy very very nice and, and 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 would have been very patient but there was a vibe going and i didn't want to bring it and my guess originally because Smokey has this that sort of high airy voice was like oh this is a 251 guy i'll put a 251 on him but there is something hidden in Smokey's voice that is this piercing shrill thing that was just completely betraying the 251 it was just like sticking out and it and it just was not working and i didn't really want to take the five minutes to go hey man do you mind if i change mics like maybe a 49 would have been the right mic for you do you mind if i change mics and we got to take five minutes and let the tube warm up and all this crap like that and i just had to think fast and i go like okay i want to make this a little darker how can i make the 251 darker I can put it in. I can put it in figure eight. That'll make it darker. I can also put it a little off axis, and that'll you know mellow some of that out. And it fixed a lot of it. It didn't fix all of it, and I was able to just fudge the rest and get a great performance out of out of him, and just make it work, and not make it about me, and making it like, oh man, I gotta get the right sound for you. And you know, I, I wanted it's Smokey Robinson. He's the artist. I want to get that. I want to get that vibe. I want to get that vibe to tape. From my perspective, that's good engineering because there was a, a long period there where there was just somehow this mythology that good engineering is, and it was, it was very pervasive in online forums. Good engineering was finding, it's the question of like, hey, what's the best Mike Pre for snare in a uh, gospel country track? You, you would you would see these posts like, what is the, you know, what's the best, what's the best compressor for um, clown metal? You know, whatever it is. And it's like, well, what's the closest one you have handy that's not on something else that doesn't suck? That's your answer. <laughs> and um, by the time this episode airs, that we will have had Scott Wiley on from um, 
June Audio in Pro, Provo, Utah. And Scott, uh, originally from Los Angeles, uh, had done some sessions with Chad Blake. And he said, you know, I know you're a Chad Blake fan, man. And he says, I want to tell you the story. Uh, we were going to do overdubs for this artist. And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, okay, we're, I'm going to hear, hear what the magic mic is that he's going to use on this overdub. And, and Scott said, what mic do you want to use? And he said, what's the closest one to you? Exactly. Grab that one. I'll make it work. Exactly. You know, the only time that I'll really maybe go with an option or two is on a lead vocal because that's the most important thing. And 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 sometimes because when I'm mixing, that's that's the thing I can be fighting because it's just like, oh, I wish I. You get in there and you're like, oh God, I wish I'd used that microphone because this one had this one's too sibilant or this one is bringing out like the crack in their voice too much or this one they don't sound makes them sound too thin or something like that and that's the only time uh i'll go like okay here let's see what you sound like on a 47 let's see what you sound like on a 251 um and which and which of those sits in the track the best other than that it's like my intuition how i'm feeling that day whether i've had a cup of tea uh, what do I think I want to use on the piano today? I don't know. What do, we, what do I want to use on the toms today? You know, I, I rotate. I have three or four different tom mics I like to use, and it just depends which mood I'm in, depending on which one we use on any given session. Maybe it's just like, I don't want ones that are silver. I want ones that are black. I don't know. Yeah, but we're also, you know, we were talking about, you know, the lack of record labels today, and, you know, there's a lot more musicians that dabble in recording that have a little bit of knowledge and they too are susceptible to disinformation so sometimes you know we get so am i yeah okay <laughs> well so sometimes we get musicians who enter our sphere and they come in with preconceived notions of oh you're going to use that on this i heard and i was talking to my extremely opinionated friend that and that's always a challenge when it's like you're not staying in your lane and i'm not saying that you know I, I, musicians can't i'm going to confess to something i really love old akg D d19s on toms it's like you know the ringo mic is what they're known as and uh sometimes i will feel guilty using them because they look so small for a tom mic i'm afraid i'm going to be judged that i'm using like this little tiny looking mic on the tom <laughs> even though you know your tom mics are looking a little small there yeah it's, 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 aren't, you, aren't you supposed to have well because people are used to sing a big mic like a 421 sure which don't don't use those on toms by the way <laughs> stay away from the 421 on toms thank you um <laughs> The cymbal bleed is awful. It is. Well, it's it's not that there isn't cymbal bleed. It's just the sound of the cymbal bleed is terrible. And then I have to gate your toms, and I don't like gating toms. So let's just talk about the day-to-day -day and, you know, keeping the, stu keeping the studio booked, you know, because you got to keep you got to keep the business going. And sometimes you got to take some gigs that maybe you're not really fond of, but so – is it continue to just be word of mouth? I kind of, I, I could beat the bushes a lot more. I could be working more frequently. Um, I'm, I'm in a situation where I kind of make my nut already. I get a little something extra and I'm kind of lacking serious ambition outside of that because I just, 
I'd rather hang out with my dog or my girlfriend or do some activity that I like to do than get paid like minimum recording wage with somebody that I'd rather just put a gun in my mouth and listen to the eighth take of them doing something badly. Uh, and, and I'm just a little spoiled like that. You know, who knows? My, my fortune could change at some point and I could really need money badly. And then all of a sudden I'll work with whomever for however much, but that's just kind of how that is for me. Uh, I, I simply try to foster relationships with people with budgets who are decent. And if they're not decent, hopefully they have a bigger budget. Right. Because there's the, you suck tax sometimes that if I'm not enjoying, <laughs> if, if I'm not, in, if I'm not going to enjoy this, I want to at least feel like I'm getting paid for my value. Like I'll take less than my value because I love making music and I love working with this really good person. But there's the use suck tax, which is also followed by the pain in the ass tax. Yeah. Or the asshole tax. Ah, three taxes that we occasionally have to add to the bill. Yeah. It's, but I'm, I'm, uh, I think Ian Gillen from, uh, uh, deep purple. I read a quote where he said, you know, I, 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 I really have no ambition. I just go through life with a stupid grin on my face. Um, <laughs> and, and that's worked out well for him. And sometimes I kind of, I sort of feel like I could be, you know, I could be spinning the hamster wheel harder. But then again, I got a, I, I got a friend who was working all the time, all the time. And I was feeling very jealous about how much he was working. Then I found out that we were making the same amount of money per year, you know, and he's got a lot of credits and he's sort of a big deal. And I was like, and, and I'm like, wow, that's, I don't feel so bad anymore. You know, I don't know that it's worth it for me to be burning myself out and, and, be away from the studio. I mean, be away from the things in life that are important to me outside of the studio. If I'm not filling my nest egg, you know? And, uh, so, I mean, your life is structured. So you've got, you know, you're not going to starve, but you can't just stop working necessarily. Yeah. You know, you no, gotta, I need, you gotta, I need, I mean, it's, it's, it's been the last couple months have been, uh, light, which is a seasonal thing. And I, and I, I do feel it this month, you know, but it's, it's not like I can give up. I mean, I would have to go get another job if I quit audio. Yeah. Not, uh, not always fun. Well, uh, you know, any thoughts to those listening who, I mean, I can't tell you the number of people I, uh, I encounter, uh, fans of the show who are like, Oh, I love your show. Your show gets me through Mondays. You know, I drive, a van for this job and, um, it's great to listen. It keeps me connected. Um, those that are trying to make that leap from the day job into the world of recording on a regular full-time basis, you know, what are your thoughts? Well, it depends what you want. Do you want to do something you love or do you want financial stability? Yeah. Don't do music in any capacity, either as a performer or, or as a technician for any other reason than you love it and you can't live without it and you are absolutely compelled to do it because it is a really especially now it is you know the bottom has fallen out of this business and the, just the money just is not there anymore and those of us who've stuck around in it we do it because it's man it's like it's, you know it's like officer and a gentleman i got nowhere else to go you know and that's it i could i could probably make a lot of money if i wanted to become a real estate agent or something like that I would hate my life. I would absolutely hate my life if that's what I had to do. Um, I 
happen to be blessed with have, being in a situation where I have a nice place and a lot of nice things. And even if that weren't the situation, I would still this I would still feel like I would rather eke out, you know, a living doing this because it's what I have to do. It's what I felt like it's what I feel like I was put on this earth to do. You know, not that I was put on it to do it better than anyone else, but I just feel like this is you know, I am the round peg going in this round hole. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it it's would you agree or disagree with this? It seems that when you and I'll have two sides of this. So when you do something you love, sometimes in in many cases, if you do it really well and you don't do it for money, the money sometimes follows right behind it. And as opposed to going after something specifically for the money. Well, that's well. Part of it is that you, then you get into art versus commerce, and 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 which both are both of which and sometimes is art and commerce, and and both of which are very uh, legitimate. So, do I want to, you know, do I want to make cool obscure records that sound like of Montreal that five people will listen to, or do I want to sound like Doctor Luke and then have, you know? and then make money and have everyone actually, but of Montreal made a lot of money being in a, having their song in an Outback commercial. So maybe they're a bad. Uh, oh yeah. Let's that go that out, may not be the best example. Let's go out back tonight was taken from their song, but, um, but whatever those, those records are that the, those records are made like, we don't give a fuck. Like we're just going to make this weird ass music. That's not going to, you know, we're, and we're going to record it weird and we're going to write weird songs about weird things and be weird. And, uh, and that's, and they're, they're committed to that. They're obviously, you know, and, and so if that's what you want to do and you don't, that's completely legitimate. It's okay to marry the two, too, to compromise. Partially just because, you know, I will, if I'm working, if I'm producing somebody and they have something that's really out there, I'll go like, you know what? Um, I get that. But let's make some, let's see if we can make that accessible for people to listen to because you know let's get them interested in us before we come out and challenge them. I always say that like you know, OK Computer was not Radiohead's first album. Uh, pa- Pablo Honey was right, and if they'd started out with OK Computer, I don't you know they already had the goodwill there. Yes, did not start out with Close to the Edge. They started out doing Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel covers. You know uh, they. Sometimes if you come out of the gate and you're a little too challenging, and I don't know if I'm, if I'm even answering your, your initial question at all anymore, if, if you want to reach an audience, regardless of the money, regardless of the commerce, if you want your art to reach an audience, is it such a bad thing if you compromise a little bit just to, just to be a little accessible? Hmm. That I, and, I and totally you can, understand your point. And though. then you can challenge. And then when you have people interested in you, then you can challenge them with, hey, let's see if you can hang with how weird this is. Yeah. I was also going to make a, a parallel to that. Do do what you love to do and the money will come. But I was also going to say, like, sometimes it's uh, – I, I see a similarity in when, when we're recording. And we were talking about just capturing, right. you know, to get the moment rather than trying to construct the moment – or you know, worry about you know getting the best kick drum mic or well. Well, there's another thing. There's another analogy that I've said where people you know you're talking about someone had to be the first Nirvana, and even though and, and I don't think that what they were doing was challenging because I think what they were doing was very accessible because they were writing really great songs. But they weren't. I see it sometimes when you work with the band and they're 
And they're very concerned about trying to sound like whatever's popular. And I've, and my thing is like, you know what? If Nirvana had been concerned with trying to sound like Poison, who was very popular at that time, we wouldn't have had Nirvana. And Nirvana would not be Nirvana and one of the biggest and most revered bands of that decade. So sometimes you have to be willing to take a chance and the success might come out of the fact that you're taking a chance. And I bet the success more than likely won't come just because success is, you know, failure always has a higher percentage than success. Yes. So when we're, we're talking about artists, you know, like your Nirvana example is great. What are the parallels in, in engineering? Do you see that people in engineering are trying to always copy their heroes? I think that if people are trying to copy something, I think it's just because they've falsely subscribed to dogma. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's just, it's just the idea of like, this is the way to do it. Someone, so-and-so does it this way. So this is the way to do it. And I, I always say there is no right way to record. There is a wrong way and you won't know it until you hear it, you know, but yeah, people, I, I think I see more people d- do different stuff than what might be acceptable simply because they don't know what they're doing and it might work. You know, it, it might have, I, oh, I stumbled upon this and this really works, you know. Well, it be, I ask that because there's such a plethora of instructional videos out there of many people you and I both know. And, uh, you know, I'll be the first to admit, you know, I, uh, I caught some Chad Blake video uh, a few weeks ago that happened to come up free online and I was just absorbed in it because I really like him. I really like his, his aesthetic now, but I'll be the first to say that I'm not Chad Blake, but it's fascinating to watch, but some people use that, use those videos as gospel. And here's the bottom line. Once you get to a, a, a certain level of understanding the basics and knowing what you're doing, engineering is simply opinion. It's just opinion. It, this is my opinion of how this should sound. Mm-hmm. This, is what a, this is what a snare drum sounds like. And this is my opinion of how you get that snare drum sound. You know, and I've done things. You were asking me about this thing where I like to put a snare on the side of the... Or a mic on the side of the I mean, snare. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, sorry. Snare on the side. I put a mic on the side of the snare, you know, and sometimes I have it pointing at the hole. Depends if that's convenient or not. Why? Because I saw Brendan O'Brien do that. And I went home and I tried that. And not because it's like, oh, that must be how you do it. I just went home and I tried it. And I was like, oh, I see what that does. I like what that does. I'm going to make that part of my thing, you know? Okay. And so you should never take anything as gospel. If you're doing something and it sounds right and it works, it doesn't matter whether anyone tells you you're, it, that you're doing it wrong. It's only wrong if it sounds wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's not working... Um, and and then and then maybe maybe at that point it still isn't wrong it's just over our head <laughs> like we're just you're just that far ahead of us that we don't know how to listen to music like that yet <laughs> i don't i got two more questions um the first question before we wrap up is when it comes to gear purchases and getting in uh to to that whole thing chasing the gear dragon gear lust it's and such um and as it pertains to finances and some people, as, as I've mentioned on the show a billion times, some people get in the hole and yep. really get behind financially as a result of gear purchases. Yep. What's your philosophy about that for yourself? Um, 
I, except for, I think I, you know, I, I, I financed my console when I bought it and stuff like that. And it took some loans to start the studio. And, but then again, it was a, you know, this was a business loan in terms of gear purchases. I have bought, I have, I buy things as they might make the money. And that's, that's just kind of how I've always done it. I have a ton of microphones. I have a ton of outboard gear. I have a ton of guitars. I have a ton of keyboards, a ton of things. And that's just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, I did this job. I've got some money. I'm going to reward myself. And that I, I going in the hole for gear is a really bad idea, particularly if it's new gear, because you will never get your money back out. <laughs> you know, I've, I'm, I've been very fortunate that along the years, the things that I've bought with the exception of anything digital and maybe my console and have all increased in their value because people have just lost their minds. But um, yeah, don't, don't go into debt, especially if this is your hobby. Don't go into debt. You know, if you have a business plan and you have a business and you're trying to make a business and you are doing a business loan type of thing um, and you have a model and run that by a number of people because it may also, you know, you have a bit, maybe you have a business plan that's going to wind up in bankruptcy. Uh, and, but, um, yeah, I, I spend as you go, pay as, pay as you go, pay as you go, pay as, pay as, as you, you go. go. Okay. That's, that's, that's kind of how I see the thing and, and definitely don't, don't max out your credit card because you read on tape op that you need, uh, this gizmo or that. Yes. Final question. Why have you stayed in this for so long? What is it? What does it continue to bring you? My simple answer is I don't want to quit the music business because I want to see how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have nowhere else to go. Yeah, I it it, it brings me joy, it, and that's the bottom line. Is it brings me joy? I there's just uh, I kind of hate mixing. That's like my dirty little secret. Dirty little secret is I hate mixing, but I love tracking. Man, just tracking a band, making music, putting stuff to tape or to to disc or whatever, just that that just brings me joy, hmm. and and uh, um, yeah, and it's what I wanted to do since I was a kid, you know. That's funny you say you hate mixing because the stuff you've played me in the car over the last several days is pretty outstanding. Thank you for saying that. I, I, the process. I mix really quickly, so I don't. A lot of those mixes you heard were just done in a few hours, you know. But but then I think when there's someone else involved in the process and the endless notes and things like that, I, I think it's the process of mixing that just drives me nuts and the endless opinions. And I was on the panel speed mentoring, and one of the questions was, how do you know when the mix is done? Well, you know, when the CD is pressed, that's how you know when the mix is done. It's It's you just... And I'll get to a, I can easily get to a place where like, I'm okay with this, but it's that process of trying to convince the other people that it's done that makes me hate mixing. Yeah. You've <laughs> got to sell everybody that it's done. Oh, and I finally just have to say, I mean, I, I, my line I always tell people is like, you know what, I'm before he, when he was alive, I'm sure David Bowie would listen to Ziggy Stardust and hear everything that he wanted to do differently or hear what he didn't like about the mix, you know, and we've never heard that. I enjoy the shit out of mixing. It's one of my favorite things to do. And as I get deeper into this, I find that the notes coming back are less. Sometimes I'm a li I'm way off base and I need to kind of retool the mix. But once I get on the same wavelength as the artist, I find that it goes rather rapidly. 
Well, it's also it's it's so it's so solitary. I don't like having anyone except maybe my assistant in the room when I'm mixing because I don't want somebody complain. First off, I don't want someone complaining about the bass sound while I'm working on the snare. You know, <laughs> it's like that shit drives me nuts. And I and I've just learned to say when someone's in the room when I'm mixing, I just go hold that thought, write it down, and then we'll get back to that. So maybe it's just the solitary aspect of it's just you playing the same song over and over and over and over and over and over and over. That just drives me nuts a little bit. And anyone else who's listening who's not involved. <laughs> I remember working on recordings and, and mixes in, in apartment situations when I had roommates and and the, and even the upstairs neighbors would be like, oh, are you done with that song? Oh, thank God. If I hear that one more time, I'm just going to, you know, fall over and, and die. It was like the, in that Eagles documentary when I think Don Henley and Glenn used to live upstairs from uh, uh, from Jackson Brown, and they'd hear him playing the piano like all day long. He'd practice Doctor My Eyes on piano all day long, and they were like so sick of hearing that same song over and over <laughs> Well, this this is great. I'm really glad I got you on the show. So, oh man, thanks for sitting down. With it's me. an honor. So, thank you. Awesome. I appreciate it. All right, we're done. There it is, JJ Blair on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, great time hanging out with JJ in uh, Los Angeles during AES. And uh, yeah, thanks again, JJ, if you're listening. Uh, so that's it. Let's say thanks to everybody that's involved. I want to say thanks to Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams for your help on the show. I want to thank our sponsors, Audio Technica, Focal Monitors, GearSluts.com, and Universal Audio. And of course, want to thank you all who listen across the world. I appreciate it. And uh, that's it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.